So I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but over the summer, and really anytime there's not snow on the ground, I prefer to wear sandals. And, and that's purely because Jesus wore sandals, right? So like for me as a pastor, that's a big deal to try to be like Jesus. Actually, you know what, you know what it really is? It's because socks just like they go away and they don't come back. Like, I don't know where half of my socks are. And uh, this is like, especially as a father, the great mystery of fatherhood is where do my kids' socks go? Like, I just, I, and I thought when we moved from one house to the next, I thought we were gonna move that one couch or that one bed and there were gonna be like 45 single matches of socks behind, you know, one, one, uh, one couch. But, but we, when we moved, they were like, there were no socks anywhere um, so I honestly, I, I really don't know where they go. I think there's like a, a portal to another sock dimension where that's where all the socks, because they just, they just disappear, right? And, and so uh, we're in Ecclesiastes, and you're wondering how I'm going to make a connection here. Um, and, and Solomon says that like life just tends to disappear. Like it just kind of goes away, and, and it's short, and it's brief, and it's frail, and, and he uses this word hevel, that it just, it's like a vapor that's just gone before you realize it's gone, and he talks about how that's much of what we do in life, and so we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We started last week, um, and we're looking at it from this perspective of how much of life is, is hevel, um, it just goes away, and, and before you know it, you look back, and you're like, where did it all go? Like I spent so much time worrying about some things, so much time striving and struggling for things, and, and it's just it's just gone, it's disappeared. And, and and Ecclesiastes is going like if you dare to if if you dare to stop and look and ask the deep questions in life, and dare to say, where did my efforts go? You realize, you realize that a lot of life feels very meaningless. And that's why the book tends to have this nature of feeling kind of kind of dismal because so much of what it's doing is saying this is hevel, it's hevel, it's, it's, it goes away so, so incredibly quickly. It can't hold our satisfaction for very long. And, and so then the goal of the book, remember we talked about last week, the goal of the book is to kind of step back and say, because this is a reality, because we've dared to stop and look and we've been bold enough to see where it sort of ends up if we chase after it, uh, the, the goal is to say, well, then what is the good way to live? What's the worthwhile way for us to, to live? If, if we only have so much time, what should we do with our, our lives? And, and how do we find out what is really good? And so that was kind of the overview last week. And then the, the next couple of weeks coming up, we're going to look at the different areas of life that Solomon addresses where he talks about pleasure. Next week, we'll talk about time. And then we'll talk about our wealth and career. And um, Connor will talk about death and, 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 and just some different topics of life and how the, Solomon, how, the, how the teacher in Ecclesiastes sees them. And so this week, we're going to look at that sort of the meaninglessness of pleasure. And what does that mean for us um, as, we, as we try to follow after God and we ask, what is the most worthwhile way to live in regards to pleasure and the things that, that bring us delight in life? And so without any further ado, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. And the teacher says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. 
I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So, so just kind of fill you in on what he said so far. When he says that laughter was madness, what he really says is, is this idea of a lighthearted approach to life, as if I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna shirk my responsibilities. Every day is Friday. I'm gonna live as if, as if really pleasure is the key to life, and it's gonna be my freshman year of college over and over and over again. And he says it's madness, and the word madness is it's stupidity. That this is just, you can't live this way because this it misses on the greater reality of what life is. It just, it ends up meaningless. And so what Solomon does is he, he, he basically, he, he's saying that even though pleasure and this lighthearted approach, they have value. He's not saying they're pointless altogether, but to make them the point of life is, is when they lose value, right? And, and so he does this sort of experiment to see what it is to, to be the place that we should invest our, our lives. And, uh, and, and so it's this really this sort of taking on various projects. And so Solomon, he, he builds the most extravagant buildings. Will that be what pleases me? He has the most amazing gardens filled with the most you know, exotic and luxurious fruits and vegetables. He, he's got these orchards. He, he makes parks. He, he has servants to do all that he could possibly imagine. He's got wealth. He's got power beyond comparison. He just chases after these things in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He's got the greatest singers offering him private concerts and and Solomon, in his most blatant failure, if you know Solomon, he, he disobeys God and he takes hundreds of wives and concubines and denies himself no sensual pleasure. And so then he comes to the end of this all in this sort of investigative pursuit where he's, it's like he's, he's writing a thesis about pleasure, about what can really bring delight and satisfaction. And, and he gets to the end of these Roads and he finds himself at a place where he has his usual emptiness. Now, I've never been that guy who's like gone to the same place and ordered the same thing so many times where, where you say, I just have the usual. I always wanted to do that. I think I might just try that somewhere just to see if it works. Like maybe they'll think I'm here all the time and they just bring me some, I don't know. But, but Solomon, this is, he's like, it's the usual. I've got what I've always gotten when I chased it as much as I can chase it, it's been empty. And look at how he kind of concludes these thoughts in, in verse nine. He says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and, that was, and this was a reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed, when I stopped and I looked at my, my research and I looked at my thesis, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was, here's our word, hevel, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Let's pray. God, I pray that you bring us wisdom through this that we would be able to learn from Solomon's mistakes before we waste and spend our life chasing after the things that he did. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who hold things in right tension, in right balance, that our priorities would be straight, Lord, that you would be at the seat of the throne of the ultimate in our life and everything else in its right place underneath.
God, I pray that we are people who experience pleasure, but experience it within the realm of you and what you desire to be. We ask this in your, in your son's name, amen. So when, when Solomon is on this pursuit, really he's asking, what does it accomplish? Like, what is it really, does it really fill the emptiness that is within me? To do all the gardens, do all the singers, do all the, the wives, do all the, does, does it really fill the emptiness within me? Does it really give me what it promises? Or is it just another hevel? Is it just another moment that passes by? Is it just another vanity? Is it just another chasing after the wind that ends in this sort of dead end of satisfaction where it can't lead there? Is it, it, we're kind of almost like at the middle of summer, it feels, which is crazy. I don't want to say that. But fall's right around the corner, and that's the better season anyway. In fall, like, I, I just, like, I think of all the fun things to do in the fall. And, and one of them is, you ever do one of those corn maze things? You ever do, like, so it's like this maze throughout this big cornfield. And um, we did it one time, and I was like, I'm good. I had that experience. I saw lots of corn, and we walked out of it later. Okay, that we, we did that. Um, and I wonder, I was thinking about this. I was like, I wonder if anybody ever got lost and like was in legitimate trouble. And so I searched this and apparently like many of the bigger corn mazes have a connection with the local police station because enough people call in that they have to like, they'd have to be out there all the time rescuing people. So they get these 911 calls where one of them, a woman says on 9 on the transcript on the 911 call, we thought this would be fun. Instead, it's a nightmare. I don't know what made us do this. Never again. I, she may have been from New Jersey. I don't know. <laughs> you you kind of like, you, you, get, you can get lost and you get in this dead end. And Solomon says, that's what happened with pleasure. Like I just got to the end of it and it was nothing more. He had every opportunity for pleasure. He could satisfy it whenever he wanted. And he says, look, look, from the king's perspective who had it all, I want you to know what happens when you've seen it all, had it all, done it all, and it's still not enough. What, what do you do? Um, and, and so for those of us who don't have the, the means to make Solomon's experiment ourselves, can we have the wisdom to learn it? And so three pieces of wisdom um, from, from Solomon's experiment that are for us um, in our situation. The first, first one is this, is we should see pleasure as God sees pleasure, otherwise we'll make too much of it. We should see pleasure as God sees pleasure, otherwise we'll make too much of it. Otherwise we'll think it's capable of doing what it's incapable of doing. Well, how, how does God see pleasure? Well, God's not anti-pleasure. It's not like God is like, oh man, I made really enjoyable fruits and, and foods in this world. I, I shouldn't have done that. You read the Bible, you read Song of Solomon, it's a book where it's clear God intended us to experience in things in, in life that are delightful. You read Psalms, you read Proverbs, and it's like, but yeah, there are things that bring us incredible joy in, in this world, and that's how he made it, and he's not shy about it. He's not anti-pleasure. Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And he's not shy about the fact that he knows how to bring us to life. See, the, God is the creator of pleasure. 
And the real, the real sort of foundation to this is faith in God as the one who gives pleasure as a gift. That, that's how this all works. He's the gift giver. And so pleasure has its, its boundaries. Pleasure has its meaning. It has its intentionality and its value as the gift that God has given us in its right context. Right? And so you think of the young lady who has recently been proposed to. And everywhere she goes, right, the hand just kind of sits in the light. So the ring sparkles. And, and she cleans it all the time. And, you know, if she's taking a picture, this hand casually just drifts up to the shoulder. And, and, and yeah, she, she's amazed with the ring. And that's how she should be. But, but if she's more in love with the ring than the one who gave it to her, you have a problem, right? If she's more infatuated with the ring than with the person, then, then we've got an issue. And, and this is the perspective that Solomon brings. Are you more in love with the gift or with the gift giver? Which one captures the greatest desires of your heart? Right? And so what, what we, we don't need to miss out on the fact that God has given us pleasure to enjoy in this life, but pleasure isn't the point of life any more than the wedding ring is the point of the marriage. Oh, the point of the marriage is the relationship and the joy that can be there. And so, so what Solomon does is he exposes, Ecclesiastes exposes sort of the pitfalls and the incapabilities of pleasure. The pitfall is that, look, if it's sin, if it's outside of the context that God designed pleasure to exist in, then it always has this sort of toxic side to it. That, that there's something about it that taints the goodness of life as God designed it. No matter how appealing or how much you desire it, that doesn't erase the toxic nature of what sin is. And, and so that's the, the pitfall. And you see this all throughout the book of Proverbs. And then there's the incapabilities where, where pleasure is never so good that it can either rival God or mirror the benefits of his love. It can never rival God or mirror the benefits of his love. Right? So, so Proverbs 14. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. In other words, it can't do for you what God can. It, it cannot minister to your heart when it aches. And in your grief, it doesn't comfort you. See, pleasure has a set of incapabilities. It can't heal you. It can't affirm you. It can't love you. It doesn't minister to you. It doesn't follow along after you to remind you how loved you are. I'm just amazed by Psalm 23 and verse six. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you, do you see that phrase? They will follow me. God's love follows you in life. Why? To affirm you, to love you, to, to just embrace you. I, I, when I think of that term follow, my mind for some reason goes back to a little kid running and a puppy just lagging behind him, right? And the puppy's just waiting for that moment where the kid slows down and, and turns around so it can just like run into him and, and just, you know, slather him with puppy kisses. And you just, the, the joy of that scene Psalm 23 says that surely your goodness and love will follow after me. Pleasure doesn't do that. What, what Solomon chased after cannot, it's incapable of following after you in its goodness. 
but God's love just tags along. So we see pleasure as God sees it. It's a gift from the gift giver. But if you think it is the ultimate, then the pitfalls show up. And the incapabilities are what it's riddled with. And, and so we look at it and we say, it's the wedding ring, it's not the marriage. Second piece of wisdom out of this is, is that we would look at Ecclesiastes and what the teacher says, and we would have an honest and often conversation with yourself about the role of pleasure in your life. Throughout the, the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the writer is saying again and again, I said to myself, and I said to myself, and I told myself, and I said to myself, why? Because he knows that sometimes we have to remind ourselves of what is true. We have to see things the way that God wants us to see them. And sometimes we got to tell ourselves to see it that way and to live that way. And so to say to yourself, like, what is the role of pleasure in my life? What, what is the good pleasure that God has for me while I pursue him? To say to yourself, how much is too much? How much of this has taken too much of my heart and too much of my attention? Have I chased after this in a way that is unhealthy? Because what Ecclesiastes exposes, what the Bible exposes, we're too much people. We want too much of things. We can't satisfy, like, like my kids when, when they're at Summer Jam and, and they're given tickets for candy and, and for soda and, and for chips. And like, we're, there's just too much. And I love seeing one little girl who can't be more than like 40 pounds walking around with a soda and a two foot long pixie stick and like a bag of chips and, and a Hershey bar like stuffed under her arm. I'm like, I am legitimately concerned for your body weight to sugar ratio. We're just, we're too much people. Ecclesiastes, he's saying to himself, it's too much. It got too much of my heart. It got too much of my time. It got too much of my money. And when it's too much, it begins to erode things. If you were able to join us for our SVC update meeting a couple weeks ago, we talked about you know, some projects we hope to do. We want to revamp the, the kids' ministry uh, wing. We're going to redesign that. And so we'll put that in front of you for a vote in a couple weeks. Uh, and we'll officially announce all that and everything. But um, one of the other things we talked about is we'd love to redo the parking lot and maybe add a lower driveway. When we do that, there's going to be a, a study that has to be done for water runoff and drainage because there's some people who are very concerned about the way water erodes things. And so they want to guide and they want to just put the water where it can go in a way that it doesn't erode things unnecessarily, right? Because you've seen stormwater erode things. Solomon says pleasure in the wrong context, it, it actually erodes. And it takes away the, the, the things that God wants our lives to be about. And we've all either been to a place in life or seen somebody in life who's chased after pleasure so much that much of what is meaningful has eroded from underneath them. And so we've got to come to the place where we have an honest and often conversation about ourselves, with ourselves about pleasure to say, where's the barrier? How do I guide this in a way that's healthy and within the framework of what God desires? And this is such an un-American thing to talk about, by the way. Like for our current culture, 
Like this is, that says like, just do whatever you want, do whatever feels good, live in the moment, chase whatever is, is, is the, your truest self that's just pursuing this pleasure. It's really an un-American thing to talk about in, in the this, this sense of we're saying that, that pleasure is not God. And there's a God who's greater than it. And if I let my life be just consumed with this, then, then it will erode who God designed me and who he called me to be. Right? So, so maybe this is a moment where we've got to stop and say to ourselves, I, I need to turn around. I've been too far down a path and I've seen the erosion begin in my heart in the way that I treat other people and in the way that I balance life and the way that I worship God to say, as the scripture says, you need to repent. You need to turn around and walk back towards the only one who is the ultimate these are the conversations we have to have with ourselves because otherwise, if we don't let pleasure, if we don't keep pleasure in check, it, it kind of tilts the stage where everything becomes self-centered. And no matter how much I try to do for other people, it ultimately ends up being about me. When I chase after pleasure, it tilts the scale towards my own selfishness. And sometimes you gotta say to yourself, I can't live this way. It's not who God called me to be. You say, but life is so short, right? And so our third principle is brevity. The brevity of life should produce a grounded and rounded approach to life. Because what Ecclesiastes says, what should I do in the few days under, under the, the sun? Well, it's certainly not tomorrow we die, so we do whatever we want. It, it, it's no tomorrow we die, but today we have an opportunity, an opportunity to do that which God desires. And therein lies the real heart of what life is all about. I recently watched a podcast or a little snippet of a podcast from one of the leading, leading atheist thinkers, Sam Harris. And so, so Sam does away with the idea of the possibility of God. And, and he's asked in this interview, he's asked, what is the point of life? I mean, if God's not real, what, why, why are we here? You know, you're this incredible atheist thinker. And he, he's a brilliant man. He's a genius. There's no doubt about it. Um, so what then is the point of all this? And he basically says, if I can summarize it, that, that the point of life is to just live fully in the moment, to make the most out of every moment in front of you, to stop thinking about and worrying about what's in the future, to just live right here fully in the moment. And there's, honestly, there's some wisdom that I appreciate there where we shouldn't always be thinking of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I question whether or not that raises to point of life status. Like, is that so incredibly wise? That that's why we're really here, that we should just live fully engaged in the moment, and that's the point of life. I have two big issues with it um, from, from a Christian perspective. Um, the first one is this, is that it's incredibly privileged. Like, it's incredibly privileged. I've never heard any sort of thinking from somebody who does not have the means to do whatever they want in life. And so when I've talked to the, the most broken and the most impoverished people in life, the idea of just saying that life is only about enjoying the moment would just be so incredibly silly to them. Like, no, I gotta go work for my food. Like I, I've gotta go work a 15-hour day just to make ends meet. It's, it's privilege. It, it sounds like, I, I, if I'm being honest, um, without trying to be rude, it sounds like the, the musings of a rich man who's bored. Who's, who's really kind of lived Solomon's life, who's chased it to the end, 
and, and then said, well, God can't be real, so what do I make about this? What's the point of this all? It must be to just live in the moment. So it's incredibly privileged. The second problem I have is it's so impersonal. It's so impersonal that, that we, should, we should try to do these loving, incredible things simply because of my own experience in the moment. I should end racism. I should end world hunger because it satisfies me in the moment. It just seems like I should, I should love the orphan, not because I have genuine, orf, genuine love for, for the orphan and, and I should value them, not because they are worth being valued, but just because it's the greatest way I can experience this moment. It seems entirely impersonal and it robs life of its virtue. Um, and the reality is, is it's not a new thought at all. In fact, in Luke 12, Jesus is telling a parable about a man who's wealthy, a man who's got everything he could have and more. And this man in Luke 12, 18, and then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and then I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. And underneath it echoes the idea of just enjoy the moment. Just enjoy whatever is right in front of me. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Because you missed it. This isn't simply an opportunity to just make it all about you, to enjoy whatever you want to enjoy. There's a relationship with the creator. And there's a judgment that awaits those who ignore him, even if they don't think he's real. And what Solomon, what Ecclesiastes, what Jesus and Luke offer is that the brevity of life is not an excuse to pursue pleasure as the chief end. No, it's a reason to worship the one who keeps life going after the end. Brevity is not an excuse to just say, I, I don't care, I'll just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I'll die. Brevity is, is a reason for you to say, then I should really make this all about the one who keeps life going after it ends. Like I should really make this about him. I shouldn't, I shouldn't build the storehouses for my own enjoyment. I should say, what is the one who handles what happens next? What does he want? How should I live in relationship to him? That we would enjoy life as a gift, but ultimately that if I look at the one who gave me his life on the cross so that I could live forever and say, how can I give back to him? What is the point of a gift towards him in response to the cross? You know, otherwise, we're left with this emptiness that Solomon was faced with again and again. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we were in the mountains and my kids wanted to go tubing down, the, down a creek. And uh, so we got these tubes out of the shed and we hadn't blown them up in a while. And I was missing like the adapter that connected the pump to the tube. And so my kids were trying to blow them up but because it didn't seal off. It wouldn't fill up the whole way. It would fill up like halfway and then it would start to just leak out air. And, and so like we figured out a way, don't worry. We, we, we like taped it off, but but they were just, they were struggling because it was like, it kept filling up, but emptying, filling up, but emptying. And Solomon's like, that, that's what life became. I was just chasing a fullness that I couldn't find. And I recognized a flaw in the system. I recognized a leak that was flowing out. 
that pleasure could not be what would fulfill me, that it was incapable of doing it. And so the enjoyment of one's life cannot be the chief pursuit of pleasure if we want the most out of life. And Jesus comes along and he says, I give life and I give it overflowing. I give it overflowing. And what we see if we compare what Ecclesiastes says to the teaching of the rest of the scriptures is, is sort of this paradox in regards to pleasure. That it's not what you think it is. It's this, this, this opposite approach. And so the, the paradox of pleasure in Christianity is this. The opposite of pleasure is what produces the greatest pleasure. The opposite of pleasure is what produces the greatest pleasure. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul's talking about living for Jesus Christ and living in a way that, that calls for genuine sacrifice of what we want for Christ and what he wants. He says, that is why for Christ's sake, not for my own sake, not for my own pursuit, my own goal in life, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight, I take pleasure in, I am pleased by, I delight in weaknesses. No, 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 wait a second, Paul. That, that's the opposite of delight. When I'm weak, I, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. What, what are you talking about? In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. What are you talking about? That's the opposite of pleasure. How could that bring delight? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because there's something about following Jesus Christ and following in a way that's sacrificial, following in, following in a way where we deny ourselves things to be able to serve him and follow after him that exposes me to a realm of satisfaction that is above simply if I were to just make this all about me, where I surrender and I sacrifice. It's almost like he's saying, if you dare to try it, serve to the point of sacrifice and find out what true pleasure in life is that you'll find when you're weak, his strength is there in a way that satisfies you more than if you were strong yourself. That a reliance on him in service becomes an opportunity for true delight in life. Dwayne Garrett, he, he talks about sort of this overview of Ecclesiastes. He says, the teacher tells his readers how to live in the world as it really is instead of living in a world of false hope. In short, Ecclesiastes urges its readers to recognize that they are mortal. They must abandon all illusions of self-importance, face death and life squarely, and accept, accept with fear and trembling their dependence upon God. And so therein lies really the beginning of what it means to be truly pleased from God's perspective. Not to say, I can do whatever I want, I can get whatever I want, I can go wherever I want, but to understand how deeply you really depend on God. And that changes something within you. And what that does is that repositions life so that everything else is held within its proper tension. As God is the ultimate, and I fully depend and rely on him, then marriage can be what marriage can be. Then, then work can be what work can be. Pleasure can be what pleasure can be. Because everything is within its proper pleasure within his proper purpose. Yesterday, uh, we, we had uh, the Summer Jam crew was here and just some incredible service by the kids and workers and, and the, the, just anybody who served in any part yesterday, I was, in, I was amazed. Like number one, that they had the energy to stay awake for all the hours that they stay awake. Uh, number two, to like 
Man, to see some of our young, young teens and young adults just being like literal punching bags for kids in our church. I mean, my own kids, which I thank you personally for. It was great to get some of that aggression out somewhere else. But man, I, I saw people serving to the point of sacrifice. And what you have is a different kind of delight, a different kind of pleasure, which what the scriptures argue is a greater pleasure. Why? Because it's not self-driven. It's not self-centered. It's for Christ's sake. You got cards on your seats about a missions trip in October. Man, God, if God weighs that on your heart, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. At some point in life, I plead with you to go on some missions trip so that you can see what pleasure is when it's for Christ's sake. When you empty yourself in service and genuine love towards somebody else, and you say, I'm gonna give of my own efforts, my own strength, my own time for Jesus' sake, you find a pleasure that is a greater pleasure than if you were to sit down and say, I'm just gonna make this all about me today. Why? Why, why would that be a, a more powerful and more satisfying pleasure? Why, is, why would I say there's something difficult or, or there's something different that's greater uh, about the pleasure when it's for Christ's sake? Uh, because here's why. Because when you, when you find pleasure for serving Jesus Christ, what it does is it takes what pleases you and it, and it connects it to what pleases God. And when what pleases you is, is the very same thing that, what, that pleases God, that's, that's the greatest pleasure you'll find in life. Look at Psalm 147. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Perhaps the greatest pleasures in life are only even obtainable when we genuinely live in dependence upon God. Perhaps that's what it's really all about. That's when everything in life flourishes because he's on the throne and because my delights have coincided with his. And I've let pleasure play its proper role in life as a gift from the gift giver, as an experience for serving him genuinely out of just true compassion for him. I mentioned last week about, about barbecue rub and, and, and how you need different uh, ingredients in there to balance it all out. And, and, and so look, what, what we're learning here about pleasure is, is that when spices are spices and not the main course, everything tastes well. You don't make a main course out of the spice. Like you're not gonna go home and have a 12-ounce garlic bulb for dinner. You're not gonna have a, an oregano salad with a little bit of dressing on it. This is just, no, that's, that's too much. These things are meant to, to add flavor, not be the main course. Solomon in his experiment, he, he goes, I, I, I made a main course out of money. I made a main course out of my prestige. I made a main course out of seduction, out of extravagance. I made a main course out of all uh, of life's pleasures and, and it was dissatisfying. It was unappetizing. And so then the question is, what is the worthwhile way to live? And I would argue the most worthwhile way to live is to make Jesus Christ front and center your greatest passion in life. And understand that he's gifted us other pleasures to enjoy in life. But none of those pleasures will ever rival what he can do for you 
And if you want the greatest pleasure in life, if you want the honest, the truest, greatest experience of delight, then you'll find it, not where you think you find it, you find it by giving up yourself in service of him when your pleasure coincides with his. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we love you. We praise you. And I think of the, I think of the warnings in Proverbs where Solomon is, is passing this on to his young boys and he's, he's warning them about where these pleasures go. And I, I, I think of Proverbs 9 where he warns his boys about the danger of sexual sin and, and how it's, it's like, a, he uses the phrase, a party in the grave. And yet we see in Solomon, in Song of Solomon, where he, he, he sings the praises of the beauty of, of sexual love and marriage like a garden. Well, how can that be? Because when you're most important, when this is all about you, then the, the toxic nature of sin in the grave turns into the beauty of a garden in marriage. And Lord, this is the picture of what you do when we make pleasure, not the king of life, but we make it a gift that you've given us and we let you be the highest in our life. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.